If you have your Bible, we're looking at Romans chapter 5. I would tell any pastor who's considering preaching Romans, the challenge of Romans 1 through 4 is outmatched by the joy of preaching Romans 5 through 8. If you have this exact Bible, I'm on page 1,054. If you don't have this exact Bible, I'm going to read Romans 5, 1 through 11, and then I'm going to skip to verse 18. I'll come back to verse 12 um, in the middle of the sermon. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would, even, would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that, in, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Steve, I'm going to put you back in charge. <laughs> Let's go back to the profound, start with the, just the profound promise. Thanks. Good luck following my notes that you don't have. This text is full of promises, but I write promise because the promise is Jesus. The list of promises that we have in chapter 5, and there are a lot of them, are delightful and good and sustaining and comforting and assuring but the promise is actually Jesus. 
Paul starts off saying, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when I started writing the sermon, I was thinking about peace, and I wanted to talk about peace the way Jesus talks about it, and I want to talk about peace the way he talks about it in Philippians, the peace that surpasses all understanding. That's not what Paul's getting at when he talks about peace. Paul is describing the fact that Jesus has stood between us, who left to our own devices, try to use God and worship stuff, idolatry. We use others for our own sense of what might make us feel good as humans, immorally. We violate community. I'm, I'm summarizing Romans 1. And yet Jesus stands between us who would naturally do that and the triune, holy, universe-creating and sustaining, thrice-omnied God. We have peace because God's holiness can't be in the presence of evil without eliminating it. Yet because of Jesus, we have been given, we've been reconciled to God and therefore we receive peace. Now this is a transition point in the letter. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith is a summary of chapters one through four. Those of you that are interested in being gripped by the longest sustained argument in the New Testament, and I think the most profound prophetic teachings of Jesus, this is Paul writing, but it's about Jesus heavily relying upon the Old Testament and explaining the world in not very uncertain terms, if we'll spend some time in it. Romans 1 through 4 uses the word life, and that's not bios, like staying alive. It's zoe, like the kingdom life Jesus promised. Romans 1 through 4 says zoe twice. Romans 5 through 8 says it 24 times. Romans 1 through 4 mentions sin four times. Romans 5 through 8 is going to mention it 42 times. Romans 1 through 4 is going to use the word faith or believe 33 times. Romans 5 through 8 is going to use it three times. Romans 1 through 4 is going to talk about death four times. Romans 5 through 8 is going to talk about death 41 times. And you're like, why are you giving me these numbers? Well, first of all, some of you study the Bible very thoroughly, and that will help you understand this transition from Romans 1 through 4, which teaches us that in the midst of an incredibly cursed and sin-swept world, we're justified by Jesus and then chapters 5 through 8 are going to talk to us about life in the kingdom, even with the curse still around us. We've been freed eternally from the effects of the curse, but my knee hurts because the curse is still here. Other things hurt too. It's just a quick example. This profound promise that we receive peace. So what? And this is where it, it, I'm excited to preach Romans and it is the least self-help book ever because self-help is not helpful unless it's standing on a foundation of truth and life. And so Romans is not going to quickly apply to your marital struggles or to your problems with your parents or to your anxiety, which is not sin, or to your tendencies at work to be a jerk. But if we will but let it it will speak profoundly to the root of those things and then free us into life in the Spirit, which is the theme of Romans 5 through 8.
which is my interpretation of the two indirect commands of this passage. Stand and rejoice. Because of the work of Christ justifying us, giving peace with God, we get to stand. Stand is a really important word in the New Testament. In my opinion, when I was in college, I read a short book, I've mentioned this before, called Sit, Walk, Stand, written by a, Christian, a Chinese Christian named Watchman Nee. It's a summary of the book of Ephesians. Ephesians 2, because Christ is seated. Ephesians 4, we can walk with him. Ephesians 6, and then stand. This is a little bit like I can do all things through Christ, which doesn't mean you can fly. It means you can do all the things that you have to do this week as a, and get to do as a Christ follower. You can love the people in your life. You can work hard and diligently at what you do. You can rest, knowing that the world will continue to spin. When Paul says stand, that's what he's getting at. Because of the beauty and truth and power and everlasting of these promises, you'll be okay on Monday. And when you're not, you'll ask for forgiveness and even repent. And you can rejoice. And I already said this, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice doesn't look like Hallmark. It looks, thank you, I'm glad one person liked that. Rejoice looks like you confident in the spirit in all of the seasons of life. You can be angry and be rejoicing. You would sound like a psalmist. You can pray ugly or almost not at all and be rejoicing depending on the circumstances of your life. You can remain confident even though you don't feel confident. You can use your brain and your heart to talk to one another about God's truth and that's rejoicing much more so than what Hallmark might try and convince us it actually looks like. And I'm for Hallmark as a company, not anti-Hallmark. But when you read the word rejoice, I want you to understand the way Paul understood it. A constant, sustaining presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And then Paul just starts talking about suffering. The scriptures have a lot to say about what suffering does compared with why. And I think we're pretty interested in why for both good and bad reasons. And why is a great question. And there are a lot of great books written about it. But listen, theology has limits because we have limits. And I think it's incredibly gracious that God didn't waste any more words on why and instead told us what suffering's going to do. What's it going to do in our lives? It's going to mature us, it's going to, especially with respect to our faith. And this is where some pastors would tell you that they haven't met someone who suffered and regrets the suffering because of what they learned from it. And I'm just going to tell you, I hate it when people talk that way. It makes me mad. I have suffered, and I would absolutely trade my suffering, some of it, for the maturity I gained from it, 100%. Would love to have never had chemotherapy. But I have grown through it. My faith has matured. And as a, a friend to others who are sick, I've matured in that way. My understanding of suffering is bigger. And I am thankful for that. I can be thankful for that without saying <laughs> something ridiculous about not regretting it. Because I absolutely would just, no, we could take that out of my life and that would be fine. 
I'll read more books to get to that maturity. <laughs> but all kidding aside, I, was, I wasn't kidding, actually. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, which doesn't mean we're happy. It means we're confident. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, do we want the endurance? That's an interesting question, but it produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If you are the kind of person that writes scriptures on little note cards, I highly recommend verse 5. Listen to this again, friends. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is good news. The profound promise leads us to rejoice. The most surprising thing to me about the book of Romans studying it this time to prepare to preach to you fine people, and I really think I keep learning something every single time it's read. I think this is about the 18th time I've read through this passage this week, and I'm like, ah, I didn't see the progression, verses 3, 4, and 5 as much until now. Anyway, the thing that surprises me the most about Romans this time through is how often Paul stops his sustained argument to praise God and to rejoice at all that has been done for him as a follower of Christ. In chapter 1, when he's describing what God gave us over to, the dark part, he just stops in the middle to worship. And here he gets a little bit repetitive in verses 6 and 7. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And that's good theology. And then he switches to mundane language. For one person will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. That's how I read it, with that inflection of tone. Because I think Paul can't help but worship, even as he's writing to a church to encourage and grow them up in their theology, and especially to help them get along with one another. People talk about the early church like it was idyllic. If you really study scriptures, it was idyllic for about five minutes. Because they have the same issues that we do to work out. In verse 6 and verse 7... Paul's talking about the glorious pursuit of Christ of us before we were even aware of it, while we were yet weak. And he's also being repetitive and worshipful, which is him doing what he encourages us to do in verses 1 through 5, which is rejoice. Listen to verse 8 and 9 again. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This is the flip of, of verse 1. If verse 1 says we have peace because of Jesus, Paul is worshipfully pointing out that God has saved us from that wrath, which is good news. And then verse 10 and 11, I think, are again, Paul can't help but worship even as he's reminding of the promises. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. 
when we went through Colossians especially, this was um, a really helpful way to understand the promises of God as they're interwoven to the similarly encouraging and argumentative letter to the Colossian church, which is much shorter. In these verses, died, died, justified, saved, reconciled, reconciled, saved. Rejoice, the one present tense. Because we've received reconciliation. Those are all promises. Those are all given to us, mediated by the Holy Spirit because of the work of Christ, because that's how loving God is. And what that does in our lives is it frees us from the human tendency to either try to use God or to worship stuff. That's idolatry. I'm going back to Romans 1 and summarizing what God gave humans over to. Frees us from our tendency to use one another to feel better in ways we think are right and God calls not. Frees us from community where we would just take instead of enjoy and receive in friendship. I know these are metaphorical terms, but Romans will apply itself to your life in profound, incredibly profound ways if we will but let it, if we will but start at the foundation of our theology, which is justification by faith, and then receive that life, every interaction with humans, Every anxiety, every tendency to worship stuff is healed and lessened. And it won't be removed until Jesus comes to earth or we go to be with him, but we will grow in the receiving of that life and freedom. The profound promise leads us to rejoice and understand. This is the part that I didn't read. I am going to go ahead and read it all now. If you have your Bible, I'm in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through... I'm going to read 12 through 17. And here's what it is. I'm going to tell you what it's going to say, and then I'm going to read it. It's going to say that your spiritual dad, naturally, is Adam. And our Western platonic minds don't like that. It doesn't seem fair, especially after the Enlightenment. We do not think it's cool that we didn't have a chance. Sorry. There's, uh, now I want to say negative things about the Enlightenment, which did some helpful things. I don't want to say negative things about Plato, which is not helpful. I want to say negative things about the West. What we need to be gripped by, friends, is that without Jesus, we are naturally without hope because Adam is our first parent unless we're rescued. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Proof of our parenting, proof that Adam's our spiritual father is that we all sin. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, counting the time that the law was given, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type. Through one man sin enters the world, Through one man we are redeemed and justified. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. 
And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason I brought up the, the problem, the, the fact that most of us were mentored in such a way that it doesn't seem fair that we're born into a world in bondage and sin and death and disease, and we have no choice about that, is to point out that Paul brings that up because it's true, but in his mind, therefore it's true, the glory of Jesus' pursuit outshines the curse and the profoundness of the curse by a lot. I came up with a ridiculous spectrum for this this morning. You can tell me later if this is helpful. If it's unhelpful, know that I'm not positive it's helpful either. Let's say we have a splendor scale of 1 to 10, okay? A brilliance scale, like light, 1 to 10. The creation of the world is a 7. Adam's decision to stop trusting the good heart of God and usher all of us into a world of sin and disease and death is a four. It was horrific, but powerful and profound. The atonement, Jesus stepping between us and sin and death through his work, teachings, death, and then resurrection is a nine, and then his return will be a 10. I think the most important word used three times in this passage, is more. We can get hung up on, is it great or fair, or does it even make philosophical sense, though it does, I think. It's very reasonable. To understand that through Adam, we're naturally lost, that's important to understand, mostly so that we understand how incredible it is that Christ came and rescued us and drew us to himself by faith, giving us peace and mercy, and grace. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But the free gift, skipping to verse 15, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God. The profound promise leads us to rejoice and to understand. If we don't understand what we're saved from, why would we rejoice? We would either take it for granted or not even know it. We were saved from sin and evil and death and disease and the wrath of God. That in and of itself is good news and then it saves us into life with him even including the blessing of the fact that as a follower of Jesus, your suffering will grow you up. You're like, that doesn't make me feel rejoicy. 
But in truth, it's really good news that God utilizes everything that happens to us for his purposes. But his plan is good, and we will not fully understand his plan until he returns. Even in heaven, we will not know fully all of why what has happened to us has happened to us. This is in Romans 8. We'll cover it. Actually, over Advent, we're going to cover it very slowly and carefully. We'll be released from all the negative effects in heaven. That will be very, very nice. But it will be after Jesus returns, and I don't think instantaneously, that we'll understand why all that happened happened. But not only will we understand, we will be recompensed. Revelation 20 and 21. The profound promise leads us to rejoice and understand the work of Jesus, which justifies us by faith. Holy Spirit pursued us, led us to an understanding of our need. He was already ours and we were already his, but then we committed out loud somehow in a prayer or in a song, or silently, that he is Lord. Not us. We're not Lord of our own life. He is Lord. And in that is freedom and life. And so we rejoice corporately. Perhaps you're going to rejoice tonight in prayer. And you can rejoice in every season. Some of your rejoicing will be angry, and you'll sound like a psalmist rejoicing. Some of it will be ugly. And you'll wonder, does God take this prayer seriously? Hopefully again, you'll look at the Psalms and how dark they are. God not only expects that, he encourages us to rejoice through leaning on his promises, which looks different in all of the seasons and on all of our faces and in all of our prayer lives and song lives and corporate worship. And that's our opportunity, though, is to stand and to rejoice. For if because of one man's trespass, I'm reading verse 17, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. That's the promise, friends. Real life. Freedom from, freedom into. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are holy and good. And we thank you that because of Jesus, we are given peace with you. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you have literally poured God's love into our hearts. And we praise you that you have us because you have been given to us. We trust you. Help us to trust you more deeply this day and this week. Amen.